When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Turns out the key to bipartisanship is simple. Lots and lots of money. We're joined by special guest Heidi Moore to discuss the economy, budget, and stock market. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are so excited to be joined today by Heidi Moore. We're going to talk about headlines, including Rob Porter and John Kelly, as well as the Olympics. And then we'll complement the other side before moving on to our main segment on the economy and the budget. And as always, we'll end this episode with what's on our mind outside of politics. Well, we are joined today by Heidi Moore. We're so thrilled that you're here, Heidi. Will you tell our listeners who aren't familiar with your work a little bit about what you do? Sure. Well, I've been a business journalist for about 20 years, uh, founded a publication uh, most recently, and I help newsrooms fix their problems reaching readers. Um, what that all has done is given me a good idea of uh, where journalism needs to do a little bit better. A subject that you prolifically tweet on, and I really appreciate the way that you talk about that and also how accessible you make financial information, which we'll get into in just a second. But we are going to start 
with the chaos around personnel in the White House. Sarah, have you been following this drama with Rob Porter? Yes, I have a working theory that Ivanka is behind all of this to try to get rid of John Kelly, because I can't quite figure out why, if this man had a history of domestic violence that the FBI discovered that prevented his security clearance, why it's only coming out now. And I think it's Ivanka. That's my theory. You know, I've been watching this thinking about how there's a horrible story here with Rob Porter and the women who have suffered at his hands. And there's also just this larger discussion about how in the most basic ways, this white house is incompetent on staffing issues. Mm -hmm. And I always, and it's always these, it's factions, even though how, no matter how many times they assure us they're there, we're a team, everything's worked out. John Kelly's brought all this order. There's always these factions led by his family, led by other, other advisors trying to, you know, fill the vacuum left by the chaos um, created by his absence of leadership, I would argue. And, I, you know, so I think there's that. I think there's this total faction, chaotic White House story. And then once again, there is his um, complete unwillingness to value women, to support their stories, to do the most basic work of speaking out against domestic violence. You know, I, I wish I could say I was surprised. I also feel like no matter how I'm not surprised, it like doesn't upset me any less. Like knowing who he is, knowing his history, watching the president of the United States react this to a staffer, two staffers being accused of domestic violence is just so upsetting. Also, I, go ahead, Heidi. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. And don't you guys think that's just going to keep happening because of, you know, everyone, it's like you said, everyone knows who Trump is at this point and the energy mm -hmm. that he's putting out. So who's going to be attracted to that? There have been reports that he can't even hire people because nobody wants to work for him. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's how you end up with the Rob Porters of the world, I think. Absolutely. We've talked about that in the foreign relations situation regarding, especially like the Mueller investigation and Papadopoulos. And like when you can't attack, track top talent, these are the situations you find yourself in over and over again. And luckily, um, at the, to this point, I don't want to say the stakes have been small, but the damage has been contained. And I'm just, I don't know how long that can last. Here's the other thing. I don't think they know what top talent is. So they've mm. told themselves that Rob Porter is top talent because of his educational background. And Trump tells himself that John Kelly is top talent because of his military background. But they can't feel any kind of niche positions that require real expertise because Trump's definition of top talent is 100% defined by loyalty to him. Yeah. And also I think by a certain amount of showboating, I mean, he keeps talking mm. about how he's always trying to hire people quote unquote from central casting. And, you know, he has a, a real problem that I think actually extends to a, a lot of managers. I think Trump is a really instructive as what not to do as a manager. And that's, <laughs> It really is. And that problem is, you know, he sees people who look like they fit the part and. Yes. Part. So true. 
Yeah. And then they end up not really being able to fulfill the full qualifications or having some skeletons in their closet. And, you know, for him, looks trump all, uh, pun not intended. And that's how you, uh, you know, end up with an administration that's just incredibly shallow in its approach and, um, and pretty, you know, pretty abusive as well, because the people who are going to put that much effort into their images are probably trying to hide something. Mm. And by look the part, you mean mend. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> like men. <laughs> and like, and by look the part, I mean men, cause men are clearly smarter and more valuable. And, you know, to, to look at the wide ranging stories of women whose at will employment re- was used against them and which they were falsely accused or brought real accusations and then were let go without any due process. And then to stand up and crow and complain about false accusations to men is, again, not surprising, doesn't make it stop hurting or make me any less angry. Heidi, do you think that John Kelly is on his way out? I mean, prayer emoji. I wish wish he were on his way out. But, you know, I think that there are a couple of things that are potentially going on just from reading news stories. One is that John Kelly is... uh, very skilled at controlling the president at making sure he knows who's calling him and who's not calling him, which is a kind of a borderline abusive personality, right? That kind of control freak that's always watching who you're talking to and so on. Uh, so John Kelly has probably controlled enough of the situation that he's safe because he's, he's controlling what the president is exposed to. You know, I think the other factor is that the president hates to admit that he's wrong. Uh, and so, you know, he, he likes to turn his staffers against each other and torture them a little bit but he doesn't actually like to fire them. He finds that incredibly uncomfortable and he usually outsources it to somebody else, mostly recently, John Kelly. So unless there's somebody around who uh, Trump can deputize to fire John Kelly, he's probably in that job for a while. Well, it just seems to me though, that what he really doesn't like is when the staffer becomes the story. And that I think is why John Kelly should be worried. I think that um, he probably didn't love it when all the good things happening in the White House were given to John Kelly as credit, but he's really not going to like it when John Kelly is uh, the story. Like, I just don't think he likes that. He likes to be the story. That's what I hope. I hope that'll be Stephen Miller's downfall now that, that there's not somebody else to be the umbrella over top of him, which I think is how he survived this long. Um, and when they became, when they get their own Saturday Night Live character and they become the story, I really don't think he likes that. Well, let's talk about the Olympics, but there's really no good transition, I think, from Rob Porter and John Kelly to the Olympics. So we'll just do yeah. it. Um, I've, have you guys been watching? I have not. We all know how I feel about the Olympics. I think it's a spectacle, but that's okay. It's not Sarah's thing. Heidi, have you been it's watching not my the thing. Olympics? I, I've been watching it on Twitter. So whenever anyone wins, I'm apprised of the information, but, uh, but mostly, I don't know. It bothers me to watch something that's, uh, you know, just, really become a story about uh, making nice with an oppressive regime. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the same reason that the Russia Olympics, the Sochi Olympics uh, really bothered me. So, so I haven't been watching it, but you know, obviously the athletics involved uh, are incredibly impressive. And, you know, just the fact that I'm not watching it doesn't mean that the athletes aren't amazing because they truly are. Yeah, I do. I did watch I, Tanya. I don't know if that counts, but I did see that um, <laughs> one woman, uh, the triple axel, like she's the first American woman to do the triple axel at the Olympics. So I think that's pretty awesome. So I've yeah. watched a lot of it this year. 
but I have watched it differently than I've ever watched it before. Honestly, I cannot shake everything that we've learned about Larry Nasser. That's exactly why I can't stomach it this year. Exactly why. I just watch all of it and I think, what are these people going through that we don't know about? Mm -hmm. And I keep reading articles about all of the disease that gets spread in the Olympics and coming to better understand how the Olympics are such a short-term proposition for the host cities that there's this Mm -hmm. big economic boom for them. And then you've got all of this just crap left over that can't be used for anything else. And to your Mm -hmm. point, Heidi, I feel like this Olympics um, is maybe bringing to light issues that have been bubbling for a very long time. And it's just so much more obvious because North Korea is, is kind of playing the world right now. Yeah, it really is. You know, there were a whole bunch of stories that people were mocking saying that Kim Jong-un's sister was, uh, had somehow pulled off this diplomatic coup simply just by being an attractive woman who was not King Jong-un. And, you know, people forget how repressive these regimes are and how absolutely unbearable we would find it to live under those Mm -hmm. regimes. I mean, we've only had like a year of the Trump presidency and we're ready for a revolution, right? So, (laughs) you know, imagine living under, you know, a regime that doesn't allow you to have, you know, the amount of food you want, the amount of light you want, that looks at everything you're reading, you know, to to praise these regimes is really a problem. And just because they very savvily put an attractive woman in a place where, you know, she's very prominent and she contrasts with Mike Pence, who nobody wants to look at. Um, you know, I, I think that that's kind of a, a hypocrisy that's underlying a lot of this. I mean, it's great in a geopolitical sense, probably, that South Korea and North Korea seem to be um, moving towards, uh, you know, at least a, a unity in in how they appear at the Olympics. But, you know, the core thing here is that we really have something that evil that's going on and it's learned to put a pretty face on itself. And that's not okay. That bothers me a lot about these Olympics. And she is not, um, she's not like the North Korean princess who's been suffering in silence. Like she is part of the propaganda operation in North Korea. Mm. Yeah. I just struggled because not because I don't have, um, full awareness of how terrible this regime is. I struggle because we allow space for all manner of terrible regimes in our foreign policy. The Trump administration in particular doesn't seem to have problem with other terrible regimes. So it just felt so hypocritical when South Korea found space to walk with these athletes and found space to create even a tiny moment of conversation with this country, which I think is positive to like stand, sit and not clap and not support them as they are trying to move forward. And look, I know not all South Koreans are happy about this. Many of them were very, very, very angry about marching under one peninsula flag and all these things. But, but, you know, I don't like the Olympics, but if it creates a moment of movement in this conversation, because then I think that's positive because I just feel like all we've done is just say, you're terrible, you're bad, we're going to freeze you out. And it's not worked. And in the meantime, he's had gotten a hold of nuclear weapons. So, um, yeah, I, that, that's the part that I just struggle with. That's a really good point. I was watching an interview recently with Brene Brown, uh, the amazing thinker on Shane. I love her. I just finished her newest book. She's the best. Isn't she fabulous? And she She's was talking. Great. Yeah. And she was talking about how shame doesn't work right? Like she just doesn't get us where we need to go. And it was a little bit 
I have to say surprising to me because there have been so many things going on in the world that have seemed shame worthy, have seemed worthy of shaming so that we can kind of set up our, our moral universe correctly. But it's true. It doesn't work. And, you know, and what it also has done is allow generals like Kelly and Mattis to, you know, potentially talk about nuclear war with North Korea. Yeah. And if that happens, we don't want Donald Trump in office. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah, so if ending the shame means ending their power, that's great. I found the decision to send Mike Pence a really interesting one. You would think that this would be the kind of thing that President Trump would do with more enthusiasm than anything else. Like this big, hyper-nationalistic display of, you know, power and might and superiority. I'm just surprised that they sent the Pences to the Olympics. Yeah, but he's got to share the spotlight. He doesn't like to do that. Also, they don't have McDonald's there, right? <laughs> I don't know. South Korea's got to have McDonald's. They got everything. They got a billion people. Surely they have McDonald's. Yeah. They probably have it catered. <laughs> I have the fix for the Olympics, but I do look at it as another example of consumerism just gone totally yep. awry and how this thing that, that has some really great qualities, like I'm not ready to say, let's be done with the Olympics. I think there are some wonderful things about the Olympics. And I do think the athletes themselves are incredible. And when NBC finds it in them to actually allow these athletes to speak, um, it's, it's fantastic. Even when it's not fantastic, it's fantastic because there are such real people involved. Um, but but it's also a, a real mess. And I think there's so much ugliness that needs to be confronted. And I imagine that the more we come to learn about the IOC, the more unhappy we'll be with what we know. Yeah. And to, to your point about the athletes too, um, you'd mentioned that there was, you know, that it's a short term economic proposition, the Olympics for the country that they're held in. It's also that way for the athletes, mm-hmm. you know, they all this time, all these years, four, eight, 12 years, um, starting usually when they're children, just to have a shot at that, uh, that limelight and winning and all of their, um, income depends on that. Right. So if they win and if they become a hero as, you know, as the narrative goes, then they get all of these endorsements and they're sought out and it sets them up economically for a while. And if they don't do that, then, you know, all the money that they spent on trainers and on equipment and on travel to practice their sport, is, um, you know, is, is basically gone to waste. You know, they have sponsors usually that help them get to that place, but even so it's incredibly expensive, uh, in terms of money and time. And if they don't, you know, get their moment at the Olympics, they're done for four years, if not, you know, eight years, it can really end a career, um, you know, to, to not be in the spotlight there. And I think that's a shame for the athletes too. I mean, they're magnificent athletes, right? They're world-class and, you know, they, they pitched it all on this one shot, which is a great story, but also, you know, kind of economically, I think a terrible way to treat our athletes. Yeah. I struggle with how we treat athletes generally across the Olympics and professional sports because we treat them like products and they're not products. They're human beings. Mm -hmm. And I think in addition to that economic price of getting to that point, i As a parent, I can't imagine making the decision that we are going for Olympic greatness and all of the things that your kids have to miss out on to get there Mm. and just the psychological burden of trying to be such a superior athlete. I don't know. There's a lot about the Olympics that bothers me. I sit and watch with a lot of conflict. 
And there's clearly, but there's clearly something that taps so deep within us because as a person who literally never watches the Olympics, it's not my thing. I'm just not into it. When I was working in Congress, some Olympic athletes came through our office and we got to hold their gold medal. And I was like, totally giddy. Like it just, it's touched something deep within me to be able to hold a gold medal, even as a person who does not care about the Olympics. So there's something going on there, deeply psychological, maybe ever, maybe even evolutionary. That's why it's so, such a complicated mess to sort it out. Yeah. We, I mean, we love striving, right? I mean, they are, mm-hmm. they are the embodiment of striving. And I, I don't think even a, a structure like the Olympic committee and, you know, kind of the financial corruption behind the Olympics can ever take that away from them. We always take a second to compliment someone who is not of our party or ideological persuasion before we move on. Sarah, do you have someone that you would like to talk about this week? I think our listeners probably know where this is going. <laughs> well, mine's a good transition. So you go first. Okay. Um, well, so I'm way off the map here. I wanted to compliment Patty Piot, probably a name that almost no one knows yet. I hope it's a yet. She is running in a Democratic primary to challenge my representative, Thomas Massey, for Congress. And as long-term listeners of Pansy Politics know, I have written in candidates against Thomas Massey for a while because I just don't think that he is at all representative of my version of conservatism, like his interest in getting rid of America's membership in the United Nations, I think is bananas. So he's just, to me, not a serious representative. And I'm excited about Patty Piat. She is a Democrat. Her website talks about keeping her mind open to ideas and working with people to fix problems. She has lost a child to addiction and is really passionate about addiction and mental health issues, which is certainly something that our area needs to have its representatives understand. She's been a waitress. Uh, she has been an executive. I feel like she just has all these great experiences and a great platform. And I am excited about her. So I'm going to compliment Rand Paul this week for uh, sh- shutting down the government ever so uh, shortly. I know that sounds crazy, but my husband was so angry. She was, he was like, he's such a hypocrite. He voted for the, the tax plan. I was like, yeah, he's a hypocrite when he voted for the tax plan. But this is the real Rand Paul. I do believe him. I do believe that he is furious at the amount of government spending. And I'm not trying to lie. He's sort of winning me over. Like the idea that... um in the face of deficits and debts that the only way to get things done is to just throw money at it um, really upsets me because I don't think that's a great approach in real life. And while I understand the federal government is very different, um, I do appreciate him being, I don't know, maybe the only Republican still still concerned with deficits despite the party's um, decades of um, bloviating about that topic. So I, I, I supported his small amount of bloviating. I felt like it was sincere. I felt like he was uh, sticking to his guns. And while I don't agree with him at all on how to, to address that problem, I do agree that it is a problem. So stay strong, Rand. Heidi, is there anyone you'd like to call attention to? Um, there isn't somebody I'd like to compliment, but one thing I'd like to acknowledge because it's such an amazing surprise is uh, Steve Bannon, uh, who is a terrible person, we're not going to change that, um, has commented this week that uh, he thinks that what's happening right now, this movement, this Me Too movement, is actually a global movement where women will rise up and take over society and end basically 10,000 years of recorded history of a patriarchy. 
And, and he thinks that Trump's going to be the first to go as a result of this, that Trump is the patriarch that uh, women are reacting against. And so obviously that's not a compliment to Steve Bannon, because I think probably what's behind it is that he just likes to be right. Uh, but I'm glad somebody said it. And yeah. I'm, I'm glad that's being kind of really taken seriously and discussed because the, the struggle for too long has been that women just aren't taken seriously. Right. Mm-hmm. So you know, even if he's coming at it from a point of, you know, egotistical, uh, posturing and, uh, and he has said many misogynistic things in the past, you know, it's good to at least have some people thinking about what the overall impact of this movement could be, because I think it could be huge. Well, I'm so glad you said that we haven't had our, our hashtag me too moment. And I was looking at these statements he made. I couldn't tell if he was saying anti-patriarchy as if it was a bad thing. But I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he thought anti-patriarchy was a good thing. Um, I think he, you know, he's a real big proponent of this. I think it's called the fourth turning or something like, it's like this, this idea that the, the world goes through these, these sort of turnings in which every, the systems are disrupted and everything is reset. He's really big into that. I think he feels like, um, his time in the White House and undermining sort of the FBI and the bureaucracy was his efforts to, to further that along. And I think he's just swept up me too into that vision of, of a disruptive force, which it absolutely is. And, um, I sure as heck hope that he's more right about Donald Trump being, um, a, a, a victim of that, of that, that turning, um, at least more accurate than he was in the Alabama Senate race anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, next up, we are going to talk about the economy and the stock market. And Heidi is going to help us make sense of everything that's happening. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Great. What do you guys want to know? All the things. Can you? Yeah. Can you just start at the? Can you just start at the beginning, Heidi? With like, I don't know, the economy, the stock market, and the budget. Yeah. That will start. We'll start with those three things. <laughs> well, sure. Well, uh, money is something you exchange for goods and services. Um, <laughs> it's actually, you know, I, I really have a lot of sympathy for people who are confused about what's going on in the stock market and the stock market in general because it really has locked out uh, individuals and isn't made to be understood by individuals. And I think that's incredibly unfair because it's actually pretty fascinating when you uh, when you think about it. So I'm going to ask you guys a question. Have you ever taken sides in an argument? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you... I mean, just a couple times, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're a better person than me then. Um, so when you take sides in an argument, you've decided somebody is right and they should prevail and that their, their stock should rise, right? That's essentially what the stock market is. It's stories. So it's represented in numbers, right? So it's represented by a stock price. And when you own a share of stock, you own a little tiny bit of that company. And when you own more shares of the stock, you own more of the company, right? Um, so when the stock price rises, that means that people are taking that company side in an argument, right? So the market is one big argument. People are constantly fighting, you know, this is good, this is bad, this is terrible. And the way that they indicate what side they believe is by buying stock and raise and which raises a stock price. So when you see a company stock rising, it means more people believe that its story is a good one, that this company is probably going to do pretty well, that its argument makes sense, that it's, uh, it's defensible. So that's when you see a stock rising. And of course, when you see a stock rising, some other stock is probably going to fall because there's another side of that argument, right? So, you know, if you buy a company that's great at tech, you're probably not so hot on a company that is 
making sort of the horse and buggy version of that same technology, right? The industrial. So that stock will fall. You don't believe that company. You don't believe their story. They don't seem very convincing. And so you'll see their numbers fall. And that's basically the entire stock market. That's how it works. When you see a stock market go up, it means that somebody buys their story, literally buys their story. And when it goes down, somebody doesn't. So what are the, in the, in the framework of these stories, what roles do the federal government, the president, the Fed play in whether or not people believe stories or the arguments they make? Yeah, usually it's very little because, you know, what the federal government and the president have traditionally done is try not to influence stories of individual companies. Right. Because they know that billions can move, can share, uh, can uh, change hands really quickly when you do that. When I wrote for the Wall Street Journal, one of the things that was very visible was that if a story went out and the implications of what a company was doing uh, were potentially positive, you you could see that stock price rise in real time. Right. You wow. could, yeah. You could quantify the billions of dollars that were changing hands. So when you talk about companies and the stock market, you have to be really careful, really accurate, really exact. And that's why the federal government and the president have traditionally tried to not do that. Um, Donald Trump is a little bit different. <laughs> so we'll, <laughs> we'll come back to him a little bit later, but generally what, um, what the stock market does in reaction to the federal government, for instance, is probably pretty narrow. So for instance, if a company gets a great contract, like a defense, uh, a defense company gets a great contract with the federal government, then it's, stock is likely to go up. That's a very direct effect. An indirect effect might be if, uh, you know, the government says it's going to invest in infrastructure. This is infrastructure week again, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> then, you know, any company that's involved in, say, making construction equipment or in building roads, its stock is going to go up. That's a more indirect kind of way. And then the third way that the government really influences the stock market is when it talks about interest rates and, you know, or the economy. And the reason for that is because um, people who buy stocks think very quickly about what's going to happen if interest rates go up. So usually that affects the banks because they deal with interest rates, right? Like think about when you take out a mortgage or when you have a credit card, right? Like that's, you know, those involve interest rates and those involve banks. So you'll see the reaction more in bank stocks when that happens. But occasionally what will happen is that the Federal Reserve or, or some other part of the government will talk about inflation and then people start to worry a little bit more because inflation affects, inflation means that prices will go up, right? So prices for everything from gas to food and so on. So then investors start making bets about which companies are producing food that might be affected, which companies are dependent on income from selling gas. You know, inflation might affect that. It might uh, make people buy a little less. So those are primarily the ways in which the government can affect it. And of course, what we've discovered a lot more during the Trump era is that the president can just talk about a company in a speech and that company's stock will go up. I mean, that's happened in the past, but uh, Trump really uses that a lot in his tweets, in his speeches, and so on. He directly praises companies, which is a little bit dangerous, I think. And then the other thing is, um, you know, what the federal government generally tries to do is not create panic in the stock market. So you'll often hear a more positive view 
of the economy because people think if the economy is good, then we'll go out and buy things. And if you buy things, the companies that sell you things will do better. So generally, the federal government tries to be as positive as possible about the stock market and the economy so that people don't stop buying because if people stop buying, it all crashes down. That's the short end. <laughs> Talk for a second, Heidi, about what the economy, what, how we know when we have a healthy economy or not. Sarah and I've been having this discussion about economic indicators, the unemployment rate, the GDP, and I've started to kind of picture it as a constellation of all these different data points and feeling like the president always calls out the stock market as though it's, it's this one data point that everything else is revolving around. I'm wondering if that metaphor makes sense and how we should view the stock market in context of the overall economy. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. You know, the stock market is not the economy. It is not related to the economy in any kind of direct way, except that people have to be buying things, right? Because if people are buying things, then the stock market, then the companies that are selling them things will see their stock go up. But generally what you want to, um, to see in terms of the economy, it is, it is like a constellation. We have a lot of economic indicators from unemployment, the unemployment rate, which we hear about a lot to, uh, mortgage rates to housing and what's going on with housing. Um, there are a lot of those indicators, but generally, you know, wages is another one. Um, it's like a Rubik's cube. It's like an art to be able to match those all up to get a real sense of what's happening. And a lot of economists can't even do it. You know, they, they really struggle with things like, so for instance, one of the paradoxes, um, of the economy recently has been that even though things are supposedly great, right? Unemployment is low, right? That's really excellent. Um, wages are not rising. So people are not seeing their salaries rise and that's a big problem. So there have been economists that have jumped into that because if the economy is doing good, then people should be making more money, but that's not happening. Uh, so that's, you know, it, it's really kind of a, an inquiry that a lot of economists get into and try to understand it's an art. It's definitely not a science. It's based a lot on interpretation and it's a little bit like astrology in some cases, <laughs> except that they're using numbers instead of star signs. Um, and so the reason that the stock market doesn't relate to that is because the stock market is just people and buying and selling stocks. They're not buying and selling your house. They're not buying and selling your credit card. They're not buying and selling any of those things. It's, it's kind of like if you were to go into a mall and look at whether people are buying things at say H and M and you know, they really like H and M's clothes and H and M's clothes are flying off the shelves. And then you look at that and you say, wow, this mall must be doing great. Right. But all of the other stores aren't actually doing so hot. That's the relationship of the stock market to the economy. The stock market is H&M, right? So people can be buying things and it can be flying off the shelves, but it doesn't mean that the entire mall around it, the entire country around it is actually doing well. So why well, does the president treat it that way? Uh, my, my theory is that he loves numbers. He thinks he sees any numbers that go up and he gets super excited, right? So this is why he focuses on the audience numbers at the inauguration or, you know, viewership numbers for Fox News or things like that. He just loves numbers and he thinks up is good. Um, you know, another theory that I have about it is that he comes from a world of debt, which is a very different kind of world. So 
when you take out a mortgage and you get into debt, you get a contract, right? You, you get a, a mortgage agreement and that contract tells you when you have to pay, how much you have to pay, you know, specifically, uh, what you can do and what you can't do in terms of the payments. Um, it's a very specific document that tells you how you're going to behave. And that's the world that Donald Trump comes from. And I think that's why he likes to get away with things, right? I think he likes to evade contracts because he lives in a world of contracts. All of real estate is based on debt. Um, everything he's done with his casinos and his borrowing and his uh, corporate bankruptcies, that's all debt. The stock market is not a contract. The stock market is you buy a thing, it can go up, it can go down. You have absolutely no control over it. That's it. And so he can never really understand the stock market because it's not predictable in a way that debt is. It has no payment schedule. It has no interest rates. It has nothing you can pin down. It's just chaotic, you know, essentially chaotic. And, uh, and I think that's why he looks at it going up and he thinks, oh, that must be good because he doesn't get that it's, uh, it's a whole other set of behavior that he's never been incentivized for. That's my theory anyway. Well, and what frustrates me is with regards to the, one of the first things you said, which is sort of, it's, it's confusing individuals are shut out of, shut out from the stock market is at the same time we've been shut out, especially in the private industry. And now you're seeing it in public, in public pensions, everybody's being pushed to private to a 401ks as opposed to defined benefits. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you're talking about like individuals are getting shut out of the stock market, um, that it's too confusing for people, but we're being told like, but this is where you need to put, invest your entire retirement. And despite the fact that most people's retirement got locked out from the 2008 sort of bubble from the same people they're being told to trust again with their retirement benefits, I just feel like there's this very twisted relationship between the stock market and what people are told, like sort of your average middle-class Americans are told about it, particularly with regards to their retirement. It's just a very um, messed up narrative that we tell people about the stock market. And that's before we even get into what Donald Trump says about it. Yeah. Well, what has been your experience, you guys, you know, of kind of thinking that way about retirement and about the stock market? What's your approach? So I have a 401k and uh, my husband also invests in the stock market. And so we have kind of followed very conventional thinking about it. We also have adopted um, a mindset that our retirement is completely up to us as individuals. We do not um, operate as though social security will be there for us. And so uh, the stock market has been for us an investment vehicle that we hope works out and we we sort of ride it along. We know that we're young. We have time for things to recover. And so we've kind of stuck on the conventional path with it. Mm-hmm. So I think the same thing. I've, I, my husband and I don't depend on any sort of social security with regards to our retirement. And we do invest in um, the stock market as a form of investing in our retirement. What bothers me about that one is it's very easy for me to say I don't depend on government benefits because I'm 36 years old and I don't need my retirement right now and I don't need it for a long time. And I have so much sympathy for people who were never told to use 401ks and were never to, and were told to trust in pensions and trust in government benefits and who are now, um, without any retirement. And 
I also, I'm not going to lie, have like this small amount of resentment about the fact that I'm being told, like, I don't play, I don't invest in the stock market myself. I pay somebody to do it. And I am under no sort of illusion that those people who manage my, my retirement are making so, so much money on something that all the science says you can't even manage. Like it's just, there's no way to be smart enough to, to, to make more money off it. And so there's just a part of me that's like, I'm watching this entire industry get so rich on doing something that, um, logically a lot of people are telling me is not even a real skill and it just, it's upsetting. And I feel really bad for people like in the state of Kentucky, the teachers are being pushed into 401ks. They don't have a choice. They just have to. And, you know, there's just a, this, the, the financial industry in general, um, seems very unfair to me. Like when you have financial advisors who are doing this investing, fighting against the most basic fiduciary duty, that to me is really busted. And I think that, you know, you see this sort of, we all just are being forced into this system. We kind of know it isn't fair, um, and isn't built for, um, you know, sort of the middle American. I mean, when you talk about wages and so you see all these bonuses as, as a part of a tax plan, I talked about it in the New York times about how it's this sort of this positive feedback. We'll give you tax cuts. You get bonuses and tell us it's because of our tax cuts, but that wages are increasing a little bit because there's, there's comp- competition in the, um, in the labor market. Right. And that was happening before the tax cuts. And, but then to say, so for decades, we haven't had any movement in wages and the, 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 the market itself has just grown and grown and grown. And the second there's the smallest movement in the labor market and wages increase, which might lead to inflation. I understand that. Then it's like, oh, well, dump it, dump it, dump it, dump it all that, you know, send it, get it out. Like I just, mm-hmm. it just seems so, it just seems like such a gamed system to me for just the the man, the middle American. And that's not helped at all by our Congress who can't do anything but spend its way out of disagreement instead of actually solving the problem. Sorry, I'm just feeling very bitter about the whole thing today. Hey, Heidi, can you help me with that? Yeah, well, you know, you, you guys have really, you've read the situation pretty accurately, right? And that's why I asked, because I think a lot of people have this conflicted relationship with the stock market and suspect that it's not entirely set up fairly, uh, as a retirement plan, I, I would have to say some people might disagree. I would agree. I think that the stock market is basically a place for speculation. It's a place for gambling. Um, remember that thing I said about arguments, um, anyone can win or lose those arguments at any time, you know, especially in individual stocks. And so to bet your entire retirement on that is probably a little bit problematic, uh, because there's no assurance that at the time that you retire, the stock market will be up. Right. right? And that's, that's the big problem, right? So if you're, you know, in your fifties or your sixties right now, and you're looking at your 401k and it's looking very robust because we've had a great stock market for the past few years, then you have a lot of confidence in the future. But if that stock market starts to go down, and you start looking at your 401k, you're going to get panicky, right? So number one, my first piece of advice is if you have a 401k and the stock market goes down, don't check your 401k. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do it. You can't control it. You're not going to change the market. All you're going to do is give yourself heartburn. Um, 
That said, one of the things we do know about the stock market, and here I want to be specific when I'm talking about the stock market, I mean the S&P 500, which is the strongest benchmark of the market's performance. So when you talk about all those advisors and so on who are you know, told to beat the market, their job is to beat the S&P 500, um, which has gone up uh, you know, over time. Where you're absolutely right is that they have not done that, right? So no human has been able to outsmart the S&P 500 over time and consistently do better than the S&P 500. So right now, the S&P 500 index, it's an index of 500 companies and how they're doing in the stock market. It's returning about 9% a year, which is really good, um, you know, kind of historically. And no, no real human has been able to do that consistently the way that the S&P 500 has. Oh, but listen, try to engage any sort of male day trader on that and you'll get mansplained out the room. (laughs) Yes, it is. It's something that we're very familiar with. I mean, they think that they can pick a stock here, a stock there. That has to be something that you really believe in, right? That's not something to to bet your retirement on. If you want to be a day trader and if you think you have a stock that's going to do great and you have conviction in that company and you believe its argument and you have the money to lose, most importantly, right? So if you lose all the money that you put into that company, you're still going to do fine. That's fine. Go ahead and do it because then it is, it is speculation, right? Then you're engaging in the stock, the stock market's about. But when you're talking about retirement, it's much more long-term. And there are a couple of reasons why that started. Um, one was that people weren't, um, fund companies weren't getting enough money to invest, right? And so essentially lawmakers created laws that gave people a tax break if they put their money in a 401k. And so that's how we ended up with 401ks. And now over time, the stock market does go up. So if you bought the S&P 500 in 2008, when it was at a, you know, a kind of a low point, you'd be very rich right now if the only thing you had bought was the S&P 500. But the S&P 500 is also going to fall again. And you might lose that money when it falls again. Um, but it will go up again, right? So it depends on your, your investment horizon. So one of one financial advisor I know, whenever somebody would walk into his office saying, I have money I want to put in the stock market, the first thing he would ask is, when do you expect to die? Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's very much about how long you have for your money to pay off. So, um, you know, that's kind of a big, a big thing about it, which is that if you can wait it out, if you have the time, if you're 36 or if you're, you know, 26, or even if you're 40, the stock market will probably have, you'll probably be able to outlast a crash. Um, but if you're in your fifties or if you're in your sixties and you're going to need that money right now, that's going to be a problem. And I don't think, as you said, that there's enough emphasis on that, um, from a corporate point of view and from a government point of view that the stock market is not like a bank. It's not a completely safe place to put all of your retirement funds. It's just one of the places to put them, um, so that you can do a little bit better. Now, there are other places that people used to put their retirements, for instance, to be able to buy bonds um, or to buy certain kinds of commodities. All of those other markets aren't doing very well right now. And so that's why more people have been piling into the stock market. And I agree with you. I think that if people are not, you know, looking at where they are right now in their retirement uh, plans, that it could end up being dangerous. People could end up losing money. Um, 
that's a risk of the stock market that I think a lot of people aren't really told about when they sign up for their 401ks. Mm. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. So what story is the stock market telling over the past few days? As everyone talks about a market correction, how would you explain that to someone who is not very familiar with the market? Sure. I think in the most basic way, what goes up must come down. 
So the stock market has gone up for a really long time. It has to come down eventually. And now might be that time. So that's something to take into account. Just gravity, pure gravity, things that rise must fall. Very specifically about this market correction, uh, there seems to be a lot of, um, you have to factor in what computers are doing, right? So over the past few years, the stock market has changed a lot. And we picture humans kind of buying and selling stocks or, you know, on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, raising their hands and saying, buy, sell, merge. That's not really how it works. What happens is there are a few humans who sell things. And then there are a whole bunch of computers that take over and decide what to do based on what the humans are doing, right? So if there's a big point of selling, the computers will probably sell even more, right? Because they have mm-hmm. certain triggers. Um, and so that's basically what happened most recently, according to the best reporting. That's, you know, there were a lot of computers that were set to sell when uh, people were selling. And um, a lot of those computers were especially focused on a measure called volatility, which is how much stocks go up and down. And so volatility has been very low. Stocks have been very stable for a very long time. And then they had a moment where they went up and down a lot. And all of the algorithms, as they're called, that are based on volatility went nuts, right? They didn't know what to do. And they it created this kind of uh, quasi crash. When I was um, in the beginning of my career, I was a corporate restructuring lawyer. And this was around 2007, 2008. And I started to understand derivatives at a very rudimentary level because that was essential to my bankruptcy work at that point. (laughs) And I had this moment where I realized exactly what you've been saying, that there is nothing very real about any of this. It's all just stories, emotion, gambling, wrapped up in structures that sound very official and intimidating. And it made me so angry then. And it makes me angry again now, how, especially now that we have a president who spotlights the stock market in this way. And I think it leaves the average person not, not even behind as much as like baffled that we could put so much importance in these indicators that are relatively fictional. Well, and here's my question, Heidi, too, is in the, in this fictional, like I said, we have this sort of story going on, but we have these very real things happening outside of it. And, and with the government's continuing resolution now that they're going to fund the government for several months, and it is billions and billions of dollars in government spending that make both Republicans and Democrats happy. And what made me really mad beyond just that what I feel irresponsible nature of this level of spending is the fact that they pass these tax cuts. They already have this feedback loop um, saying that they're going to do all these great things for the economy. And instead of seeing the real results of these tax cuts, what we're going to see is a result of this government spending, which I feel like they're going to say is a result of the tax cuts. So how do those tax cuts and this infusion of government spending play into the story we're going to see in the economy? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you both just hit on something really important, which is that this is these are stories, whether it's in politics or whether it's in the stock market. They're stories that are designed to get control of money, but they're not fictional because if you believe them, they become true. If you believe those stories, you spend your money and real billions move and real uh, fates are affected. 
whether they're in, you know, a kind of a civic sense because of the government or whether they're in the stock market because of 401ks, people believe these stories and back them with money. And that changes fates. It changes destinies. It changes outcomes. So in that sense, it's real. It just tells us we have to be careful what stories we believe. And I think that's what ties into the question about the federal government and taxes. A lot of this bill is asking us to believe that uh, tax cuts for corporations, which is essentially what it is, is going to benefit regular people. And if you believe that, then, you know, those those tax cuts are a good idea. They fit in with your worldview. But if you're one of the people who sees very little uh, money in your paycheck, uh, like the $1.50 that Paul Ryan uh, had touted for a cashier at Costco in a now deleted tweet, then maybe you're not so impressed by that. Maybe that money isn't enough to sway your idea of the story. And um, that's what's going to take us into the next election, right? Which is that if you end up with a story that has created these enormous deficits. And then let's say by November, 2018 or by November, 2020, that story doesn't bear out anymore. People are going to vote on that, right? So it's happening now, but you know, just because somebody's telling a story doesn't mean that they're telling the ending of it. And everyone's going to decide on the ending, depending on how that works out in a few months. So Heidi, you have written about how the stock market's job is is not to do long-term thinking, that the stock market is always reactive to these moments in time and, and stock traders are not thinking far out into the future. And now we have uh, a situation in our government where it appears that our legislators are not thinking very far out into the future. I'm wondering... Whose job is it to think about the long term with our economy? You know, ideally, we used to have legislators who did think about that. I think we're in a time of unprecedented chaos um, in our political world and everything is topsy turvy. People are confused. I'm, I'm pretty compassionate with most lawmakers. They must be more confused than everybody. You know, they were brought up on certain rules and all of those rules are being broken in the past two years, in the past three years about what you can say, what you can do. Um, you know, what immigration means, like we're, we're basically debating the very core meaning of what it is to be an American right now. And so those lawmakers are confused, but in the past, they were the ones who were able to tap the kind of intelligence that's needed to do long-term thinking. Usually that ends up being academics, economists, people who are experts in their fields, and then weaving that into, um, you know, their potential projections. A good example of that is the Congressional Budget Office, which, you know, usually projects the effect of a budget, you know, decades into the future. Um, but all of those institutions are being questioned right now and everyone is very confused. And so I think that the lack of long-term thinking right now is because of the breakdown in our political system, the confusion in our political system, let's call it, because it's not a breakdown. And, um, when people write themselves, when they decide on, you know, what kind of moral world they want to see, that will potentially change again, right? We had lawmakers in the past who were able to think very far into the future, visionaries. You know, here in New York, we had Robert Moses, who was controversial, but who managed to envision a, a, you know, a city that would go 
you know, what it would look like in 50 years and 60 years, right? The Bloomberg administration in New York similarly tried to think that way, building parks and reconfiguring the cities so that it could look a certain way in a hundred years. We don't have that right now in government because everyone's panicky and in, in panic, people think short term. So, you know, my note of optimism is that I do believe that eventually people, the American people will rise up and say what they want and uh, that the legislators can then respond to that because right now there just seems to be a total breakdown in communication. That's my, that's my thinking. What's your thinking? I think that's a great note of optimism to end on. Actually, I think you, you captured it very nicely. I'm feeling a little more hopeful and a little less bitter, Heidi. So that's good. <laughs> Next up, we are going to talk about what's on our minds outside of politics. So, Beth, you watched the movies this weekend. I'm going to not try to be mad that one of them wasn't Magic Mike 2, but that's okay. Yeah, I got totally lost in two movies, which is something I don't do very often. I, on Sarah's recommendation, I saw Lady Bird, finally. Heidi, Sarah, have you seen Lady Bird? I have not seen Lady Bird. I'm saving it for a really dark uh, moment when I need to be uplifted. So tell oh, me. It's so good. So Sarah has this gift, Heidi, of being able to listen to something and just pull out like the moment in it. And I feel like you did that with Lady Bird by telling the story of, of her writing about Sacramento and the nun explaining to her that paying attention and love are the same thing. When I saw that, I was like, that's right. That's the moment in this movie. But I loved this movie. I am such a sucker for love stories that aren't about romance. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Ladybug is Ladybird is just full of those love stories that are not about romance. And so it was a very wonderful movie. I'm not Catholic, but I thought it was the loveliest portrayal of Catholicism and Catholic school, especially that I've ever seen. I did too. I did too. But a Catholic school in Sacramento. I mean, it's not like Boston, just saying. <laughs> All this history. A little clean slate out there. Anyway, I loved it. I, I really did get lost in it and lost in the characters. And I thought it was terrific. I also watched Victoria and Abdul. Have either of you seen that? I am not. I'm, I'm too, uh, I'm stuck in Victoria, early life Victoria, the PBS show. Have you seen it? I, I have, I haven't, but it looks interesting. Okay. Well, I love Judy Dench. And so that's part of why I wanted to watch it. It is another beautiful, non-romantic love story. And I don't want to say too much about it. I thought it was so charming. I smiled the whole time. I cried a lot not even because there was anything really sad about it. I just thought it was wonderful. And it was another kind of riff on the theme of royals feeling imprisoned by their royalty and by all the stories wrapped up around what it means to be royal. So it was really, really fun. I highly recommend it. She's so interesting, too, because like there's that other movie about how she had the Scottish groundskeeper. Remember, yes. there was that. I think that may have been Judy Dench, too. Like, I think that Victoria, and you see this even as in the young portrayals of her life, like, she is so, I think it's so interesting because she's seen as such a, like, buttoned up, follow the rules. But she was queen, and she was more than willing to say, nope, I want it this way, and I want to do this, and I want to be with this person, and I want to hang out, spend my time this way. I think that she sacrificed a lot and gave a lot, and so she was ready and willing in certain moments of her life to say, I'm the queen, I'm going to do it this way, and y'all get out of the way, which I'm here for. Well, that in this movie shows her to be so 
curious and open. There's a moment when she criticizes everyone kind of in her household as racist. And it's just, it's really, really compelling. Well, I finished two amazing works of fiction over the last week. I read The Power. Have y'all heard about this book? Mm -mm. So women gain the power of electricity. It starts with 15-year-old girls and then it spreads to grown women and they have the power to produce electricity. So let's say you, for example, wanted to attack a woman. She could touch your arm and you'd be dead and that's the end of you. And it's totally fascinating how the power, um, the power of electricity subverts the power in the sort of global structure. It's also built around this really fascinating framework that I, it's, I don't want to spoil it, but the book itself, it's so good. I read it so quickly. It was just bananas good, especially like sort of in the Me Too moment. It was a really interesting, um, experiment, thought experiment to go on. Highly recommend it. The power by Naomi Alderman. It was on Oprah's or it was on Obama's list. It was also on, this book was also on Obama's list. I read Sing Unburied Sing by Jessamine Ward. Mm -hmm. Another just beautifully written, amazing book. I don't even know how to explain it. It's very sort of, it kind of reminds me of Gabrielle Garcia Marquez. Like it's sort of fantastical in a way and really thinks through land and history and time and our connection to all of it. Highly recommend both of them. They're both fantastic. So what about you, Heidi? What's, what have you encountered in pop culture or otherwise that's left you sort of pondering? Um, you know, I think that there's been a lot of, uh, really good journalism that had me thinking there was a BBC documentary recently that was about, um, you know, how women can oppose women because none of us have studied how women really are. Mm -hmm. And I found that fascinating. You know, if we can use this time to kind of interrogate ourselves and to think more deeply about our own biases and our own behaviors, I think that's constructive. Um, I mean, that's definitely, that it sounds like it would match up well with the power because she's definitely asking those questions for sure. Yeah. I mean, it sounds absolutely great. I really loved, uh, call me by your name. Uh, (gasps) Oh, I'm so excited. I'm, I've got the DVD to watch that soon. I'm so excited you mentioned it. <laughs> it's, it's surprisingly phenomenal. If you have, oh, people it, love it, man. Yeah. The, the novel itself is amazing and it's very internal. It's about, it's a love story. Um, but it's also a love story about kind of getting outside your own borders and questioning kind of, you know, who you are and what you expect of other people. It's, it's pretty deep. And I think it's also interesting that the characters speak in several languages. They speak in English, they speak in Italian, they speak in French, and it kind of gets at this uh, sense of being lost or, or um, not in a, a certain place, not in a certain nation that I think is super, super interesting. And it's just a, an absolutely heartbreaking love story where it ends with, a, I think, an act of cowardice. I think you can call mm. it more an act of self-preservation um, by, by the beloved, by the love object. And I think that's just completely interesting because even within love, which has been written about incessantly and has been covered in so many movies to the point where it's tiresome and we may not even want to see it. This kind of looks at what we really expect from other people. Um, and to that point, I want to give a shout out to the good place on NBC, um, which is an amazing TV show that is about 
technically heaven and hell, but is really about the moral universe that we want to exist in. And I find that this is just a fascinating moment for a TV show like that to be so popular. It talks about, I got to start watching that. I've heard so many people recommend it to me. It's, you know, I, I approached it with some skepticism. I have to say, but it, it really just blew me out of the water. It was so good. Um, because it, it, again, is based on characters questioning themselves and questioning who they want to be and making choices to be better. And I think in this kind of chaotic time to see characters that are actively thinking about being better humans is so interesting, right? Because everything that we're looking at right now is what's bad, what's bad, what's bad, who's behaving right. bad. And to make a conscious decision to be good and, and how to make that decision is just fascinating. So those three things all on the same theme of uh, questioning ourselves, I think, would be the things that have really captured me. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being here, Heidi. It was really fun to talk with you and definitely illuminating. Uh, we hope you'll come back sometime. Thank you. It was lovely to talk to you guys. And we will be back with you on Friday. We'll talk a little bit more on Friday about the specifics of the spending CR on Wednesday. You can catch the nuance life. We're going to be discussing loneliness, which I think is a perfect companion to Valentine's day. And until then, keep it nuanced y'all. To support pantsuit politics, please visit patreon.com forward slash pantsuit politics or rate and review the podcast in the Apple Podcast Player. Thank you to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, George, and Sabrina. You can find us on Twitter at PantsuPolitik or Facebook and Instagram at PantsuPolitics. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. You can also hear his work and get more nuance by checking out our podcast on family, relationships, and values, The Nuanced Life.